Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. Lock the doors. Stay in your rooms. Everyone is in danger. All right, when's the murder mystery start? Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Bob Doucet. Bob has edited such spectacles as The Mummy, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, Looper, Godzilla, San Andreas, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and Knives Out, for which he was nominated for the Eddie. Now he has crafted one of the most entertaining and highly anticipated films of the year, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Bob, I just love The Glass Onion. I thought you did an amazing job. It was so much fun. I loved it more than Knives Out, which is saying a lot because I thought Knives Out was brilliant. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Oh, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate that. We had a fantastic time making the movie. So for people to enjoy it, and especially someone like yourself, it's really something. Well, full disclosure, we've known each other since film school. That is correct. You actually mixed my film project when I was in 310. So we'd go way back. We do all the way back to, uh, I guess it's the School of Cinematic Arts now at USC. That was a fun time. It was extremely hard. Sometimes I thought, I wonder if I'll ever make it through this program because they were pretty brutal sometimes, but it was a ton of fun while I was there. Yeah, it was intense. Definitely. Yeah. Not for the faint of heart. And then we were both working on Poker Face together, which is a blast. Yeah, a Ryan Johnson joint. It was a lot of fun. I cut episodes one and nine, and you did one of Ryan's, right? I did two, four, and ten. And two was Ryan's. Oh, look at that. See, three. That's a lot of work, my friend. But two plus Glass Onion plus starting this other... (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah, I know. I'm going to need a vacation at some point. That's the thing that I'm mainly thinking more than anything else. As you know, though, occupational hazard, right? But everybody works so hard in the movie business anyway. It's truly a vocational calling. I think it tends sometimes to be a lot more than a job, a lot of really obsessive, caring people. Absolutely. Well, this is your first film with Ryan, and I was wondering how your collaboration began. Well, interestingly enough, it's one of those things that I find to be somewhat typical in how a career in the movie business evolves. You don't know at all what is going to lead to something else. I went in and met on a movie that had some issues, and the producer of the movie was Rom Bergman. Rom is Ryan's producing partner, and interestingly enough, didn't get the job. But then come two years later, my agent calls me and says, do you remember that producer, Rom Bergman, that you went in and met with? (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, absolutely, because he was so lovely. And he had told her that Ryan was going to make another movie. And I was really excited because I'd seen Brick and Brothers Bloom. And I thought Ryan's first two films were just exceptional. Uh, so I, I went and met Ryan for lunch. And not long later, I had the job. So I owe my Ryan Johnson career and experience to his producing partner, Ron Bergman, who hooked us up. And this is an interesting thing about producers. You know, what do they do, right? Well, this is a perfect example of what they do. He met me. He remembered me. He thought I would be a good fit with his partner. He set up a meeting. And the next thing you know, uh, a decade has gone by and four feature films and two episodes of Poker Face. Yeah, good fit. <laughs> That's great. So did Ryan cut both the Brothers Bloom and Brick? He did. He did. You know, that was interesting because he and I have not really talked about it in any sort of detail, but I suspect he wasn't really interested in adding an editor on Looper. I think probably he would like to have 
cut it himself, but I think the movie was, you know, sort of moving to a, another level in complexity and maybe it'd be good to have some help. And so that was a really interesting interaction with me to begin with, because, you know, he cut these two movies and he's a skilled editor. He knows a lot about every aspect of making movies. He's a, you know, complete filmmaker in every way. I think so highly of him and I learn so much from him every single day that I work with him. It's incredible. I, I think it was a challenge for him initially when we first started working together. I mean, nothing bad. It went actually really well, but there was a real learning curve. And what's most interesting about it to me, and you know, everyone who's worked with the director over a period of time, I think would generally say the same thing, is that uh, as time goes on, if you're a good fit, and I think that we're a good fit, I mean, we have a really great working relationship and enjoy each other's company. But as time goes on, I understand to the absolute micro decision-making, the sort of things that he's interested in. And over time, you really become very aligned if you believe in the mission, right? That's always the tricky thing. Anytime you're collaborating with somebody, you have to believe in the mission. And, but, you know, I really believe in the mission. I love the movies we've made together, you know, not because I was involved with them, but these are movies that if I saw in a movie theater and I had no involvement in, I would love them. So that's pretty great. He's a great guy, he's highly skilled, and, and we, we have a good time making movies I really love. That's fantastic. How's Ryan's process different from other directors that you've worked with? Before I started doing this, if you ask me, well, what would it be like working with a writer-director, especially someone as precise as Ryan, I would think, oh, I bet they're really precious with everything that they've written. But that's not the case at all. And I really appreciate that about Ryan because I think these, these guys that do this and are really good at it, they really understand post-production. They really understand editing. And editing is, is a true extension of the writing process. It's another draft, but now with you know moving pictures and sound versus words on a page. And so it isn't just, we can't cut any dialogue or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like whatever we need to do to make the movie better. And I, uh, and I really appreciate that about him. Doing the final rewrite. That's exactly right. Tell me about having the weight of a massive franchise. I mean, you're no stranger to that, having done Star Wars, The Last Jedi, but also the responsibility of following up the hugely successful Knives Out. Do you feel that pressure or do you just do the work and try to make it as good as you possibly can? For better or worse, I really do feel the pressure and some movies more than others, you know, sort of depending on the circumstances. But when I come on a movie, I'm all in, you know, 100%. Like we have to do everything we can to make this thing the best possible movie ever, right? But when it's a sequel, it's especially difficult because you have to figure if they're making another movie, the first one probably was liked by a lot of people. And that was certainly the case with Knives Out. And I remember thinking when Ryan said the next thing he wanted to do was another murder with Benoit Blanc, I was actually surprised because I just thought, well, you know, they love that first movie. And shouldn't we put a movie in between those, <laughs> between Knives Out and another one? And, you know, I mean, it made me very nervous because I love the movie as much as the audience does. And to go and make another one as your next film, I thought, wow, that's really bold because people are going to compare it. That's the problem with it, is that it's not like it's this thing that can come out and people judge it on its own merit. Mostly where they start is, is it as good as, better or worse than the first movie? And to me, that was asking a lot. So I really felt it, you know, wondering about every decision. And you just want to bring the same level of delight to the audience that you gave them in the first movie. Again, like I said earlier, I mean, I'm invested in movies probably more than anything in my life and it's been that way for decades and so because of that 
really do feel the pressure. But thankfully, it worked out because the few audiences that have seen the movie so far, they seem to really enjoy it. And I think they find it compares rather favorably to the first film, which is great. Yeah. And I would think that a murder mystery is very tricky, too, because you've got to make it clear to the audience and you need to set up all these clues. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference cutting that particular genre? You've done so many different genres between action and drama and comedy. And murder mystery is not something that people do very often. And it's not an easy genre, but you guys make it effortless. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that it's one of the great challenges of Knives Out and Glass Onion and also one of the great delights because for every movie you work on, you have to put yourself you know, in the audience's shoes and you have to see things from their point of view because you know everything. You know, everything that every character does says, every single plot point. So when you watch the movie, it's really hard for you to be a normal audience member. One of the things that Ryan really wanted to do and, and we pursued to great length in Glass Onion was being really, really honest with the audience. Not putting them in a position where you just pull a switcheroo on them and you know you go, well, wait a minute, that doesn't really make sense. And we worked really, really hard at being honest with the audience and really pushing things so that when you go back and watch the movie a second time, you can see so much in plain sight that wasn't obvious when you watched it the first time. So that's the trick, right? We have to know where's the audience looking right now? What is the audience thinking right now? Because if they're thinking about one thing and you just put something out there to them that isn't in context, something that they should be paying attention to, you have a chance of being really honest with them. So when you watch it again, you go, oh, why didn't I see that? So that's the challenge, right? All films are like this when we have to sit down and watch them over and over and over again and try to imagine what it's like for an audience seeing the movie for the first time. But here you have that plus, do you really know what? the audience is looking at. And I don't mean just specifically on the screen. I mean where their attention is. If they really knew what it was when they were watching it, the mystery breaks down. Mm. These movies are perfect Swiss watches. It's like all these little details and and complexities. But the bottom line is it's so much fun. (laughs) And I can tell you from my daughter watching Knives Out probably 30 times, these movies, because of that, they're very watchable again and again and again. Wait, I want to see where I missed that or where was that switcheroo? And the trick is what you don't want is when people rewatch it to be frustrated and not give them no chance to understand something, right? Yeah, you don't want to be so obtuse that they feel like, well, on multiple viewings, I don't see how this ever came together. Exactly. And one of those things you guys do so well is play scenes twice, but from different perspectives. Even the way you start the film with the knock, you echo that later, repeating scenes, but from different points of view, like when the lights go out in the mansion and everyone's scurrying around and you play it a second time and keeping that fresh. Again, it's one of the exciting things to do in a movie like this. But it is a little bit part of the genre and certainly true of Ryan's movies. And it's a really exciting thing because cinema is particularly good at playing with time. You just assume if there aren't obvious cues, you're in the present when you're watching something. And you might find out, like you do in films like this, that 
something that you're watching is not necessarily in the time that you think that it is. And uh, sometimes it creates complexities. We had a couple of things in Glass Onion that we had to finesse because it was causing confusion, not for a huge portion of the audience, but enough that it concerned us. And then you have to come to understand what it is that's causing them to not be where you want them to be at this moment. Because, you know, a momentary confusion or confusion even that goes on for a little while is fine. But as soon as it causes a disruption that has people thinking about that thing they don't understand versus watching the movie that's in front of them, you have a problem because they're now not engaged in the movie, right? What we did was we reprised something from earlier in the movie Plus, we changed some dialogue. And these two things had a massive impact on that uh, group of people who were confused longer than we wanted them to be. We really like to screen the movies often, you know, friends and family screenings, which is mainly filmmakers, not your typical audience, because your typical audience has absolutely no agenda whatsoever. I mean, there's nothing to it other than I've come to see a movie. I hope I love it. That's it. But what you get out of the filmmakers, which is great, is they speak your language and they can help identify the things that they think will be an issue. And they can also potentially pitch suggestions, you know, and how you might fix something. And I always find that incredibly helpful. And I'm assuming that because you don't want to get the mystery out to the general public, you're mostly screening friends and family. Is that the case? Yes, it is. I mean, on the first film, Knives Out, we did three normal previews with a recruited audience and 350 people or whatever. And on uh, Glass Onion, we did two. But you know, not to get off topic too much, but then there's something like Last Jedi, which is just, it's so maddening because you can't preview it at all. (laughs) And so, you know, the very first time I saw the movie with an audience was at the premiere. We we, we ran the movie many, many times for very small groups of people, but that's really maddening. And I guess the trick is like, if you give too much information to the audience, they're ahead of you, and you never want the audience to be ahead of the filmmakers, but you don't want them to fall so far behind that they're frustrated. So it's that balance. No, that's exactly right. And as you know, if they're ahead of the movie, they think the movie's slow and boring. The job is the tightrope. What are we going to do to have the audience at the right place, at the right time, in the right frame of mind, feeling they're getting all the information? But I'm sure you experience this when you go see a movie. I certainly do. Even if you don't know exactly where it's going, if if you feel like you're in good hands, there's a confidence in the storytelling. You do get cut a little bit of slack, but we all endeavor to have the audience in the perfect state of mind at all times. And that takes a lot of work. Sure. And that's why screening is really important to get their feedback, because as hard as we work and as much as we understand, the audience throws you curveballs, which are just brilliant and awesome. They'll laugh at something and you'll be like, I had no idea that people would laugh at that. Sometimes people will say that they're confused by something that you thought was really clear. Exactly. And it's the most terrifying, awful, nausea-inducing experience taking a movie out the first time and putting it in front of a, a big audience. But you learn so much from it. And I love the audience because, again, like I said, they have no agenda and you can't argue with them. And I've been with filmmakers who try to explain to the audience and the audience is like, I don't care. Yeah, right. Exactly. And there's no point to it because they're pure. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm like anyone else. I'm sitting there and if a focus group is going south, I want to run up there and argue with them. Like, didn't you see the thing where we did the thing? I mean, seriously, what is wrong with you? Right. But you can't do it because they're not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? And obviously, too, the other thing that's great about audiences is that sometimes, you know, they're the patient. 
I don't, I can't tell you doctor exactly what's wrong with your movie, but I can tell you there's something wrong around here. And it isn't always right here. Sometimes it, it was, it happened a little bit earlier. And Sometimes people try to give you a fix and the fix is not the fix. The fix is somewhere else, but they know that something was bothering them at this point. Again, big part of the job because we know, right, what the, the studios and sometimes producers, they'll latch on to something that the audience has noted. And you just have to like be disciplined and think, yeah, no, I know we have a problem here, but I don't think it's this, you know, you can't be overreactive. And where it gets complicated is when people disagree and that is tricky. It is very much so. I would say that one of the things that's complicated about this film and also Knives Out is the complexity of editing scenes with so many characters in a room. Yeah, there's no question about it. You know, ensemble movies are, you know, much more challenging from a character standpoint. You have to keep a lot of balls in the air. You want to get this meal just perfect, all the right flavors and spices and everything just at the right level. And it has become over the years, my very, very favorite thing about editing because I love actors and I love what they bring, the detail of character. I I mean, I find it endlessly fascinating and it's something that I understand so much better after doing this for 30 years, but I still know so little. Every single day, every single actor, the material comes in and you go, oh my God, look at this thing that they did. It's, it's truly my favorite part of editing is working on character and performance and just trying to enhance and not screw up the beautiful things the uh, actors have, have given me. Absolutely. And I just thought the acting and the choices of actors were just phenomenal. But somebody who I just thought jumped off the screen was Janelle. She was just fantastic. She's absolutely incredible. The thing is, they become your friends, the characters, right? Every day I go into the office, I'm like, oh, I'm going to see my friend Andy and Benoit and Birdie and Claire. and Right? I mean, and you're going to hang out with them. Yeah, because they're going to say things that's going to make you laugh. And they do. And again, talking about, like I said early on, every day I work with Ryan, I learn something new. And it's the same thing with all these great actors. They they show you things that you you haven't seen before. And I just love it. So I have the greatest job in the world. There's no way around it. And one of the things that was so fun about this movie is it's a mystery wrapped in a mystery because we learn early on that Blanc wasn't invited to the party. So that creates a big question mark. Who did invite him? And I think it's a great deal of fun. I mean, it's, it's actually quite significant and really important to the plot of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting creating a a mystery within a mystery because there's also a time where Andy disappears and it creates a lot of suspense. It's an interesting point that you brought up here because it just occurs to me that I think about what did I think about the suspense that created? I thought mechanically on paper, this creates a lot of suspense. I felt none of it. And I don't mean that I don't think that it didn't work because we know it works because we put the movie in front of an audience, but there are some things that I find extremely difficult to gauge. In a murder mystery, anybody could have done it. And if anyone is not there and anything goes wrong, it creates suspicion. Absolutely. So somebody's not in the room. It's feeling tense. Things are getting a little out of control. I love the glass closing in front of uh, the Mona Lisa. And you keep on hearing this pounding as the dress of Bertie is twirling in slow-mo. 
things are getting more and more intense. And I think that uh, that created a lot of tension. It does. And I will say that scene is certainly one of my favorites in the movie and one of my favorite things to cut because it seemed tense to me when I was putting it together. And we really wanted the audience really wound up there (laughs) because they feel something is going to happen and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. But the pace is picking up, the cutting is picking up, the length of the shots, the volume of the, the case shutting is increasing, increasing the music. There's a great, a great track in that scene Mm -hmm. and it's getting bigger and bigger. And the audience, because they understand the language, they know that we're heading toward something big Yeah, and it's very hard to sit through. And again, this is sort of a purely cinematic idea, right? The idea that you can change the pace in which cuts change, how long they are, you know, by making them shorter and winding up that spring you can really bring the audience along with you. And also the soundtrack, I think the soundtrack is really quite excellent. Sound design is fantastic. I thought Nathan did a great job with the score. Oh yeah, incredible. I mean, incredible. I mean, Nathan's just such a such a great composer and he's really killed on both Knives Out and, and Glass Onion, no pun intended. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your sound design because I did think it was great. I'm super interested in sound unbelievably interested in sound. And so I put a lot of time and effort into it, you know, and and my crew as well. It's a big part of the job. What I'm always trying to achieve when I'm putting a movie together is at every moment, I want the movie to be as finished as it possibly can. This is like a sort of a crazy thing because I mean, I know I've done this enough. It's not going to be finished. What do we think that all these months are going to be that we're going to work on it, right? (laughs) I'm aware of that, but I also want to do as many things as possible. And some people I mean, and I think rightly so, can say, is that some sort of cheat? Shouldn't it really work without any music? Yeah, it absolutely should. If it doesn't work without music and and sound effects, it probably doesn't work, right? So that's absolutely true. But all movies have the benefit of sound and music. So I don't know what the downside is, except for the amount of time it creates for the cutting room. Because I think the process in post-production can be interactive. It can be iterative. It doesn't have to be... We cut the movie, then, you know, we do sound effects and put music in it, and then we screen the movie. I I like all those things to happen as quickly as possible because I just want to know more about the movie and where it's headed. And on the soundtrack, sometimes we get incredibly sophisticated with what we're doing. And by the time we get to the dub, we know what the movie's going to sound like. And I don't mean every sound or anything. It's not that the Avid track is the gold standard, but what I hope we've learned by the time we start mixing a movie, and this was certainly the case with Glass Onion, is I hope we've learned all the big moves, all the things that we want to do, like there's no sound here. Mm-hmm. It just goes out, right? Or the, I was talking about the crescendo of the music, you know, and the way the sound effects work in that scene that you pointed out. And I want to understand those things and I want to know about them while we're putting the movie together, because I just think it gives us the opportunity to figure some things out. So for me, I love really uh, concentrating on the soundtrack. Well, they do two things as well. They help inform the pace because you don't want to get music in there later that then you realize, oh, I could have really held longer on some of these things or I need to cut things faster because with this pounding, it will feel sharper. And also, I think that it creates a template where other craftsmen can understand where you and Ryan, where you're coming from. There's no question about it. And that's what I was saying. You know, you have an interactive relationship with the sound department. 
we'll get tracks from them and we'll, we'll cut the stuff in and mix and everything. And then we send them a new cut of the movie and they see all these things. They see stuff muted. They see, you know, the levels, the, they, they see the intent. I love it. I mean, look, plenty of people don't work this way, but it's a place that I've evolved to and I really love it. You also edit in 5.1. Talk to me about cutting in 5.1 and the advantages of that. I mean, it's something I found very exciting. And I, I think the first movie that I did, I cut in 5.1 was Godzilla, and that was 2014, so 2013. And somewhere in that time period, Avid made some changes that really allowed 5.1 to be something that you could manage. So I started doing it back then. And, you know, I had a really willing partner in the sound designer, Eric Adol, and he was really excited about this opportunity. And so the way we worked on that film was he'd track while we were cutting. So we get 5-1 material and it'd come back and we'd have these 5-1 tracks. And then we'd send things back with, you know, some stuff muted and some things changed and such. And so there's this interaction between the two of us. And so by the time we got to the dub, that there was a real good idea of how we were going to handle things on the movie. And I've done that ever since. I find it to be great. But like, if you, if you want to get down to its most simplistic benefit, having the dialogue come out a center channel it makes a wildly different um, difference in what you can do with sound in a cutting room. Yeah, the music doesn't bury the dialogue. Exactly. And I actually think that if you chose to cut in 5.1 and just do it the most basic way you could, and you really didn't do that much like pan things or put things in the surrounds or whatever, you would still get the single most important benefit, which is the dialogue coming out the center. It makes a massive difference. One sequence that I thought was brilliant was when you did the split screens. And oh, yes. what I thought was so clever about it is that they start forming geometric shapes and the lines move as the split screens are happening. Tell me about the complexity of creating that and how that came about. We had so much fun with that. It's just a brilliant and exciting thing to work with. The idea of the split screens is scripted. You have to kind of know ahead that you're going to do it as complex as it is because these things have to be shot separately and you have to find a way of syncing them all up and everything. But that said, once they're done, we found all kinds of other fun things while we were building the sequence. I have to give a lot of credit to my visual effects editor, Yvonne Bean, who really worked out a lot of those cool patterns. Some of those things were things that Ryan had in mind, but Vaughn took it to another level and really created some really fun stuff. There's a cameo in the sequence and it allowed us to create things like with this cameo, an extra joke. Create a new box. <laughs> right, exactly. Create a new box. And, you know, because it's like anything else, you know, once we started working with it, you advance it, you add flourish and hopefully don't do too much that you break it, which I don't think that we did, but it was tremendously fun. One of the things that was so clever about it was also the geometric shapes seemed to form into the same shapes for the box, which I thought was kind of nice that it echoed that. Yeah, everybody does this when they work on a film, right? You're always looking for those things to like tie it all together. Ryan's such a great filmmaker and great director, and he has his vision, and we're all there to service and enhance that vision. A big part of my job is locking into the point of view that he has and doing everything that we can to support that point of view. So every detail, every flourish, all the way through the final dub, you're always looking for things to make the movie better. I have to say, though, one of my favorite split things ever is in Austin Powers. I, I just, <laughs> I know that that's for just a straight on comedy, but I highly recommend checking it out. It's extremely great. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Talking about little details, when there was that dissolve from Blanc to the boat, and then you had the same dissolve from Andy to the boat. And that's the only dissolves that I think you had throughout the whole movie. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really great image. It wasn't intentionally designed that way from the start, but we had material that supported that second dissolve. Generally speaking, I don't really use a lot of dissolves. It's not anything against them. They, they can be quite lovely. You know, the language in Ryan's episode of Poker Face that I did, we actually used a ton of dissolves, probably more than I've, I've used in anything I've ever worked on. And they're really quite beautiful. But I just don't go there as a natural instinct. Yeah, I mean, I think that they fell out of favor, but they are so clever when they're done well. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about making inserts feel so organic. I know that Ryan shoots these great inserts and they don't feel like inserts. They just feel like information, clues, things that are organic to what's happening in the scene. Well, I mean, the thing about inserts is they're such an important part of filmmaking. Maybe they're like kind of crass and crude. You're getting in there so close. But if done well, it's a magnificent cinematic storytelling mechanism. I mean, and also it can be very, very beautiful too, especially with hands, people making a connection. In Last Jedi, there's intentionally shots of hand inserts, and they're really just quite lovely. And making them work is really, I mean, finding exactly the right place to get into them and get out of them so that it's all just part of the natural flow of the movie. I've been in production sometimes where you need these shots, and it's not the fix, it's to show and to emphasize and to amplify and accentuate and also the thing about them, their most brutal use, is they're so efficient. They usually do two things. They usually give you information they need and they usually let you jump time. And so they're incredibly valuable. So, hey, thanks for bringing up inserts because they are awesome, right? <laughs> they are, they are. Oh my God, I'm just so geeking out today. What? No, geeking out is good. <laughs> One of the things that's so wonderful about this and Knives Out is that editing is putting together pieces of a puzzle. You have all these interesting pieces that you have to craft in such a way that they all fit together and they reveal a greater whole at the end. I mean, that's the beauty of our job, the collision of putting two images together, right? It's incredible because, you know, I don't think the audience specifically, you know, knows that editing exists or even shots exist, right? I mean, it's... A lot of people don't. They think it just is shot that way. Right. It's an abstract thing. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks about it, which is the way it should be, right? The whole language of film, the notion that in a 24th of a second, you'd turn around, you know, 180 degrees or wherever, you can go wherever you want. It doesn't even have to be that. You go to a whole different time. You go to a different century. You go to a different planet on a cut. That's what I love about the job because you make these connections. Juxtaposing two different images and having a greater story told. That, that's right. And it's just an extraordinary power. And it's just so attractive once you start doing it. It's so exciting to make a connection. That's another thing that happens, right? I mean, sometimes you run into trouble. You ditch a line of dialogue for a reaction and it's infinitely more powerful than the line of dialogue could ever be in the collision of putting those two shots together. I think it's endlessly fascinating and hard to explain, which is fine. I don't think it's important that people understand this and how it works. I think it's just incredible, the beauty of cinema. Mm, I love that. I thought that that balcony scene at Blanc's was brilliant because you had two people in a very small space talking for quite a long time, and I was riveted the whole time. Tell me about keeping the audience engaged with two people in a tight space talking for so long. So that scene, we spent an enormous amount of time on it. I think it's the longest scene in the movie. It was challenging because of its length and because there was so much information. 
And it's a good deal shorter than it was originally photographed, but it took us a long time to get there because, you know, we tried a lot of things and, you know, sometimes we'd make deeper cuts and they were too deep. And so you have this little push-pull of going back and forth, trying to get it just right. Because the thing is, you know, there's a difference between pace and length. The scene is long, but what you don't want is you don't want it to be paced poorly and long. And the two things are interactive, though, of course. You know, you can have something that's not very long that's paced poorly, and you can have something that's really long that's paced great. But they are interactive because, I mean, length in itself can be overwhelming. But that scene mainly had a length problem, and you just have to figure out what things you can do without. And there's a lot of story in that scene, too. There is. That scene is never going to be short, but it could be shorter than it was designed if you are precise and surgical in what you lift out. Because the story stuff you have to have, but there's still a lot of character in that scene. A lot of things we come to understand from Janelle's character and and also even Blanc as a character. I mean, because, you know, then the other difficulty too, right, is that if you have things that are crowd-pleasing, and you know, because you put it in front of an audience and they laugh at something, it's hard to cut that out because, you know, it's part of what the movie's trying to do. And so you just have to stick with it. And I'm glad you like it because it's a fantastic bit of writing. It's one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, and great, great performances. You know, it's just two people talking. It really turned out great. And the version that we ended up at is far better than where we started because we came to understand all the things that we needed to get out of the scene and those things that we could lift without damaging either character or or story. Speaking about long scenes also that totally held my attention, I think your climax takes place over a very long period of time in one room. And I thought that the way that you guys crafted that was brilliant. Yeah, I think that always worried me a little bit, that we spent so much time in that room. It's not changed up visually that much. If there is a feature of Glass Onion or uh, Knives Out that's similar, I mean, and it's a trope of the genre, is the detective has to now go and explain (laughs) to both the, the characters and the audience who did it and why they did it. And Blanc is really, really good at that because he's at his absolute blonkiest in in those sequences and they're incredibly fun really entertaining and you know hopefully what's revealed is going to be satisfying for the audience so far we found that to be the case but we'll see when the movie is really out there if everybody responds to it the way that we hope they do it was challenging because you know it's long i mean it's not so much pace there are really no pace issues in that sequence but there's a lot of things to manage all the characters are there and they're all doing their thing and you know you got a lot of balls in the air and you really have to have the right amount of everybody and there's a lot of story and there's flashbacks but again the one thing too that's really great about these films is that you mess with time a lot even just short bursts of flashbacks i mean some of these things are as quick as a shot but they're really entertaining when you show somebody what they thought what they were seeing was this, and it's actually this. Because again, if, if ever there was a scene where you know, you're know you pointing out to the audience all the things that they saw that they didn't realize that they saw because they didn't have the context to understand it, it's wildly satisfying. So yeah, I mean, those, those scenes are really, really great. There's even a little Rashomon in there where you think that there was something that happened, then you right, exactly. it. It's done, and it actually, you didn't see it that way. You saw something else. Exactly. It's, it's, it's really fun because two different ways of looking at something are presented, but only one is the truth. And it's clear which one is the truth, but it's hard for the audience to discern when they saw it earlier. Again, kind of a, a really nice bit of invention and writing by Ryan. And I wonder, because I've only seen it once, whether the first time you showed it was uh, the truth or whether it was the false premise. Are you, say, are you saying when you watched it? Yes. Yes. Well, that's interesting, right? 
there's something that's really incredibly fantastic about that, which is, no, the truth is told. That's great, because I had no idea. I mean, again, it's really important that the audience is played with fairly. Because otherwise, when you go back and you watch the movie, you go, well, what the hell? Anybody can tell a lie, and if I don't know, it's a lie, right? So the, the movie is truthful, but what's so good about it is that our experience was that some people caught it. But then when they saw the lie, they thought, oh, I guess I misunderstood what I watched. Oh, interesting. You know, either way it worked. Yeah, I, I missed it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, ba- it's a bit of a magic trick. Yeah, it's misdirecting the uh, audience so that you can have a sleight of hand. Absolutely. But, and some effort was put into it editorially to make it casual. When I say casual, I don't mean to deceive. I mean to make it like everything else. Sure. It's just a thing that you're watching. Not to point it out. Nothing is being pointed out so the audience doesn't know that it's important, but they do actually see it. That's fantastic. Not to geek out too much, but I loved that you used the old Hollywood Edge alarm. <laughs> that... Oh, the thing, you're, talking, you're talking about when Blanc sets off the alarm? Yes. Yes, I know. It's funny. I, I'm going to take your word on it that it's Hollywood Edge. It probably is. Or or, or maybe it's just... No, 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 I, no, 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 no. I've no. been hearing it no, since no. like film school. <laughs> no, no. I understand. I'm actually not going to say that you're wrong because I don't know the origin of that alarm specifically. But what I will tell you is that it was a very studied thing that we tried many, many, many. Really? We really worked it so that each level is a whole new, and you know, it really does work. I mean, the audience laughs three times in that scene, you know, (laughs) somewhat because of the, the sound effect. So when we were dubbing the movie, you know, this is something that happens. We all know this, right? When something works and you've seen it work, there's a point where you can't change it because you can't take the chance that there is a little secret sauce involved. So my guess is, even though I don't know for a fact that that's Hollywood Edge, but it very well might be, if it is, it would make sense to me that it tracked from editorial all the way through the final dub because it was one of those things that we didn't want tampered with once we got it to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you probably have the sound guys going, we can get you a much better alarm. Well, no, no I, I, well, I, I'm sort of thinking about them right now because, you know, the movie's done up at Skywalker and they're all such great guys and these are all high-end people. So I hope it's a variation or that if it actually is Hollywood Edge sound effect that they forgive us. i thought the editing was just fantastic when helen's rummaging through the rooms and the quick pace of it and then finding daryl is just hilarious oh isn't that great isn't that great so the thing about that sequence right i mean it's a little bit montagey right it's non-linear keep it moving you know it was a much longer sequence as designed there were a lot more items that she found they're kind of funny but you know over time you go this has got to be sharper than this and you know it's not super challenging to do that if you have the sort of layout there was enough that was done in the photography and in the original design of the sequence that it was really just deciding this has to be paced up because not only do we need to make this sharp but it'll also be sort of better editorially and which of course was the case and as you know sometimes these things are you know you take four frames off of a shot and suddenly it's magical. Sure. It's kind of amazing when that happens. It is. And again, part of the gig, right? Speaking about photography, something that Steve Yellen does, this film look that Ryan's going for, you shoot digital, but going for a film look. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I know that that was happening on Poker Face as well. Yeah. Steve Yedlin, Ryan's uh, cameraman, is a wizard and a scientist, and he's really invested in the notion that 
if you want a film look, you can shoot it with film, but you can also shoot with an Alexa and through various uh, grain and adding weave and lens distortion and all the various secret sauce that he puts on it. You can get a really you know satisfying film look. It was employed on Knives Out. And in fact, there's a couple of shots that were photographed just for fun on film that are in the movie. And so it's like, see, you know, it looks just like film and you'd never know that they look any different than the rest of it because it matches perfectly. He's a he's a bit of a genius. It does seem like the characters almost like pop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, and then, of course, they keep true to what you can do on film. They constrain themselves slightly so that they don't break too many rules and really achieve a film look. It works fantastically, I think. And you get the benefits of the digital cameras, too, which are for those of us who worked on film. And film is beautiful, and I love it. I own a Leica camera. I mean, I'm into film. It's great. But mm, there's a whole load of trouble that comes with film. Yeah, the speed, the heaviness. Exactly. And if you can get a look that is the look you want, say you want it to look like film, if you can do that, I don't think it's very much of a cheat. I don't think there's a particularly big downside. I mean, I know there are filmmakers who would disagree and I get it. I mean, when I was a kid, everything I watched was on film. There was no digital. I like the aesthetic. I mean, I think about something like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or something like that. Magnificent cinematography is in that movie. and, And I think it really looks like film because it is film. And so I get the desire for the look. I really do. But I think if you can have the convenience and all of the other things that digital gives us. I I think, why not? Very cool. How did Nat King Cole's Mona Lisa end up in the film? I don't know all of the details of it, but Ryan, when we were shooting the movie, he pitched that to me and he said, would that be two on the nose? (laughs) And I was like, absolutely not. Let's get it in there. (laughs) So we had a couple of versions too. I don't remember what the other one was. It's slightly more recent than Nat King Cole. But the Nat King was just perfect. And, you know, I'd cut the scene and the scene is changed just in the smallest of ways to accommodate the music. I mean, not a shot removed, just some trims here and there. So it was one of those situations where it was really meant to be. As soon as we put that track in there, that was that was in the stay. So it just fit. It did. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, you probably were thinking in the back of your mind a little bit about that and maybe through osmosis. That would be great if that was actually the case. But actually, just to, to go back to what I was saying before, is like I like music and sound and all those things to be mixed in with all this. But I mean, I never cut a scene with music. But Ryan's extremely good with music, too, because one of the things that will happen is like even when we're shooting and I'll text him and I'm like, you got a song for this scene? What are you thinking? <laughs> and, and sometimes the answer is no. I mean, sometimes he doesn't have something. But every once in a while, he had something on his mind when he was writing it or sometime after he finished the writing process and thought it would be good. And, you know, there are quite a few songs in this movie and in the previous one where it's the first thing we put in there because he had it in mind. Yeah, Ryan has excellent taste in uh, source music. He does. He does. He knows his stuff. He's got pretty good taste in just about everything. Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? I don't know. The macro of it, I don't know. The macro of it for me is I've always found my job really, really hard from the very beginning. And it's taken a long time to get to a point where it wasn't oppressively hard. I always loved my job because I just love movies so much. And the thing that's exciting to me is as time has gone on, I'm loving it more and more. And it's not waning, which for me is kind of surprising because as you know, having done this job many years, it's exhausting and it's filled with stress and all of those things. And you know, I don't say that to complain, it's a vocation. I would never not do this, but I do find some relief in the fact that as the years have gone on, I like it more and more. Already starting from a position of where I loved it, 
And so for me to then add on, to be able to work with someone like Ryan, who's an incredibly great guy, it's a absolute delight. And the movies are great. That's huge. It's, it's incredible. I don't think I can say anything more than that. I think that's about, <laughs> I think that that's about, that's my mission statement. It's not really much of a mission statement, but it's, it's kind of where my head is. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I've just been thinking, I'm so lucky. I've always felt lucky, but I feel a different kind of lucky now. And it's not specifically just, you know, because I work with a lot of people that I really like working with. I mean, I, that's another thing that I feel very blessed by is that making a movie is always very difficult. Like I said earlier, making a bad film is hard, much less a good or a great film. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate that I work with a lot of great people, but I really do believe I've got the greatest job in the world and I'm fortunate I'm allowed to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I loved talking to you. This was such a pleasure and I love the movie. It's an absolute pleasure talking movies with you and look forward to doing it again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a murder and the killer is in plain sight. Are you calling me dangerous? Well, we'll see. Let it all out. Hell yeah! This is reckless. The killer wouldn't hesitate to kill again if it covers their tracks.